Venture capital. On the one hand, the phrase has an allure. Capital that you are venturing, not just investing. And it sure can end well or badly because it's an adventure. On the other hand, the phrase and what it represents is pretty opaque to many of us. I mean, have you ever invested yourself venture capital? Are you a VC? Do you want to be one? And how does that work? And is it really possible to buy shares of a stock like Zoom, not just before the IPO, but years earlier, along with other so-called venture capitalists? Well, my guest today is not only one of my favorite people, he's also a true blue venture capitalist. And he's kind of made me one too, but it didn't start out that way for Olin Douglas, the longtime chief financial officer of The Motley Fool. Nope. He has evolved into that, and he'll share a bit of his journey with you today, but he'll take you along for the ride, not just on his journey, but on our journey together, aiming to make you, by the end of this hour, smarter, happier, richer, as you obtain a big-picture understanding of how venture capital works and to what extent you can or should or should not participate, and a lot of other foolish insights besides. Wisdom from a fool, only on this week's Rule Breaker Investing. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder, David Gardner. Welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing, which in some senses is what venture capital investing is. I mean, venture capitalists intentionally take on risk. They know they're taking on a lot of risk. They're looking some often young person or team in the eyes and saying, could this all end well? And should I put not just my, but the money of my limited partners in this or that stage? And that to me is very rule breakery. And there's a lot of overlap between rule breaker investing, I think, and venture capital investing. But with my friend Olin Douglas joining me shortly, that'll be one of my questions. I'm curious, for example, are six traits of a rule breaker stock. Do those work in venture capital when and when not? So we're really going to be covering this topic, which I was saying to Olin before we started recording today, I can't believe we haven't talked about this before. We've now entered the seventh year of this podcast, this week or last. And wow, I guess lucky seven. Finally, I thought to have one of my best friends at The Fool and somebody who is a venture capitalist on to share with you insights and thoughts about venture capital investing. Now, Before I have Olin on, I want to mention two things up front. The first is next week is Mailbag. And it's been quite a month this month of July 2021 for this podcast. Last week, I hope, I'm pretty sure a lot of you did really enjoy Indianapolis Colts head coach Frank Reich, all of his life lessons and insights, not just as a fellow liver of life or a very successful professional in sports, but as a foolish investor as well. And what a delight it was to share Frank with you. I've seen so many great things on social media, specifically Twitter, where I hang out at David G. Fool. This podcast, of course, at RBI Podcast. And if you had any thoughts for us about what some of the things Frank said or how you changed as a result of last week's podcast, love to hear them. Again, our email address is rbi at fool.com. And Mailbag next week will be featuring some of the best things we hear, but not just about Frank, but about the review of Palooza. We reviewed three five-stock samplers, Five Stocks for America, Five Stocks Passing the Snap Test, and Five Stocks Celebrating the 2018 World Cup. We did that just a couple of weeks ago. It's been fascinating to see how those companies have done. 
And then, of course, today's podcast and our discussions, venture capital investing may occasion some questions or reflections from you. If you want to share those with us, rbi at fool.com is the email address. And then one other forward-looking comment has nothing to do with investing in this case, but it does have to do with next month, which each year for this podcast in recent years has been authors in August. And I'm really happy to say our first author in the first book you should read in advance of August. We do this in August because people often go to the beach, at least in the Northern Hemisphere around the world. And if you do go to the beach, maybe you like some good beach reading. So Positive Intelligence will be our first book on August 3rd. The author has appeared once before. He made a spectacular entrance onto the stage for Rule Breaker Investors when he joined me, Shirzad Shamin, to talk about positive intelligence. This time, I've actually fully read his book, and we'll be discussing positive intelligence. I highly recommend you read that book. And next week, I'll be mentioning the two other books coming later in August. All right, sweep all of that off the stage, and now let me shine the spotlight on my friend and co-conspirator here at The Motley Fool, Olin Douglas. Olin, great to be with you this week. David, thank you very much for having me on the call. I, I'm, I'm pleased to let you know that I won the bet with Tom Gutner. We had a, a seven-year over and under bet on when I would get <laughs> <laughs> on this program. <laughs> and uh, it may be a push since it just happened in seven years. <laughs> well, I hope you won a lot of money off our good friend, Tom on that, Olin. I'm delighted to have you. And truly, I think Motley Fool Ventures, which is the Motley Fool's first foray into venture capital investing, we're going to talk about that in a little bit. But I think that fund started, Olin, was it about three years ago? So I couldn't have, we couldn't have even been talking about this, I don't think, seven years ago. But part of the fund story is that you, on our behalf, were investing just the Motley Fool's bank account into private companies prior to ever starting a fund. Yes, that is true. So the fund officially launched in July. Uh, our, our anniversary was two days ago, July 18th. So, so, Hello. so in 2018, three years ago is when we launched a venture fund. But I believe we made our first private company uh, investment as a company. It was in 2010. 12 or 2013. Wow. Uh, so we were doing uh, we were doing a little bit of experimenting and testing inside of the uh, house with our own money, which I think a lot of um, fool readers would not be surprised to hear that we just didn't uh, make something up and, and foist it on them. <laughs> <laughs> it is a really great approach, and, and we often talk about it just for investors, especially people starting investing, in this case, not venture capital investing, but just stock market investing. You don't have to put all your money in at once. You shouldn't put it all in one stock. You should toe dip, test and learn, buy in thirds. We have all kinds of approaches. But Olin, one thing's for sure, this is all if you're playing the long game. Yes. If you're playing the long game, it makes a lot of sense to learn it over time and get better at it. One of the interesting things about venture capital is the structure of funds is traditionally set up so that they have an end date. And I think we have that for our first fund at Motley Fool Ventures. But I'm going to park that. I think we're a 10-year fund, but we're going to come back to that later. Because if I ask you all the questions that I would want to, we'll go well more than an hour this time. But Olin, I wanted to get back into the year 2001. You were coming to The Motley Fool, and you were you had an amazing first 10 days or so. And maybe you could just let our audience know how things started for you in 2001 at The Motley Fool. Well, thanks, David. Uh, I'll start my Motley Fool story. Uh, when I first met you and uh, Tom, <laughs> in that I had applied for a job at The Motley Fool and uh, wanted to 
get a look at you guys up close and personal. And it's funny that we're on a podcast because back in the days in 2000, you were doing the radio show, doing yep. it live. And I came to an event um, that you guys were hosting in Baltimore. And I, it was you were you were doing the last session on the last day of the conference. <laughs> <laughs> now that other means we were really important or really not important. <laughs> exactly. Well, well, I don't know which one it is, but I do know that I showed up just for this. And by the time I arrived, they were packing things up, so I was able to walk in without paying, you know, <laughs> uh, and walked in. And Rick was there, I believe he was there, along with. Um, uh, Broido, or maybe Rick my talented there. producer Rick Engdahl, Rick, and yes, know, Steve Broido, and many, probably Matt Greer, and many people who brought who brought out Motley Fool video and audio to our members for years. Yeah, yeah, and I got to uh, meet the fool there. And what's interesting about this story really is that, that was probably in September, October, and we had discussions. And I remember talking to the woman that was going to be my boss. Like, yes, they offered the job. I'm excited to join, but I have a little bit of a problem. Uh, we have a year in bonus at my company that I am right now, oh. and I'd be happy to come now, but that wouldn't you know, affect my year in bonus, which I certainly told them about. They knew what was going on. Yeah, and this is so, the year 2000, right? Year 2000. This, is, this is the fall of 2000, which was an interesting time, but keep going. An interesting time. It certainly was. And I said, so I can um, come in October if you guys would be willing to uh, pick up some of the bonus, or I can start in... Uh, January and my boss took about one second said I'll see you in January <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then I, I show up and um, even though I wasn't an official employee uh, the, the company did a lot to kind of bring me up to speed on what was going on and talking to us and really give me a grounded in the company so that on the second day <laughs> after being there we had an all company meeting and I had to go in and Introduce myself. Hi, I'm Ola Douglas. And in short, we have too many people. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember. I, I don't think we were trying to set you up for anything like that, Olin. I think we we would have taken you a few months before. You would have been a little bit ready for this. But unfortunately, at that stage of our company and the market was selling off and things were about to get really ugly, we had to do a round of layoffs. And so on the second day of your Motley Fool journey, you were the guy standing up saying that. Oh my god! Yeah, but it was it was yeah it was it was it was interesting. Uh, but I, I mean, in all honesty, I think the way the company reacted, the way the employees reacted, the way that everyone responded to get us through that period, uh, that that probably formed the foundation of why I'm still here twenty plus years later. I've I've just never seen that kind of um, activity. I'm going to put Rick on the spot. His, his wife actually approached me about. <laughs> about the health of the company at a at a holiday party and insisted that I tell her the truth about what was going on. Wow. <laughs> love it. Rick married well, but we would have expected that. <laughs> Pretty sure that I saw Olin cross my name off of one list and write it onto another that day. <laughs> I, I give Audrey credit for, uh, for me still being here. Yeah, she was quite persuasive. <laughs> it was clear the answer that she wanted to hear. So, <laughs> mm. Well, and, and just to just to fill out uh, the story there, we were venture-backed talking about venture capital. We were venture-backed at the time, which means we were overspending our means quite by plan. Uh, the problem was the stock market was about to dramatically sell off, and a lot of our advertisers that were floating our 
our business back then, as Ola knows better than almost anybody, uh, all of a sudden said, we're not advertising on your site this quarter or this year. Do you know how bad things are? People aren't even opening up their 401k statements, guys. We're not advertising our brokerage firm on your site this quarter. We don't have the money ourselves. And boy, did that put us in a hard place. So yeah, yeah. You know, that's that's in part what was happening. Olin, you you moved on from a hard 2001. You you weathered the storm. We we laid off at one point three quarters of our employees. We went from 435 people to 85 people in nine months. 2001, the the only bad year in Motley Fool history, and it was a horrible year. But some years later, some wise person of the fool said, hey, you know what? I think Olin really knows his stuff. He knows this business. Let's make him chief financial officer. And Olin. You've held that, I think you held that position for 14 years. Yes, I did. I did that from uh, roughly 2004 to 2018 in that CFO's uh, position and uh, learned a lot. And I learned a lot from the perspective of being a venture-backed company. And, uh, you know, these stories we're telling, those are all kind of relevant to some of the things you need to be prepared for if you're going to be a venture capital uh, investor. Um, as, As David said in his preview, It really is about trying to find that rule breaker before they're a rule breaker. And that is a um, it is a high risk venture. Mm. And we're going to talk more about that later. But let's just bring us up to snuff. So I think, in fact, I just think I know the reason why you stepped down as the Motley Fool's chief financial officer is that you had a different dream in your mind. I actually told a portion of the story on my road less traveled in 10 and a half chapters, Olin. You were one of those chapters, and I told this story, so a lot of listeners will already know this, but it was the chapter about gravity. And could you just retell your story? I probably got a few things wrong when I did it on my podcast, but could you, what was going through your mind somewhere around 2017? Yeah, sometime around that time, um, <clears throat> and was just thinking about, I uh, had you know, been at CFO for a while. We were doing some private company investing, as we talked about earlier, and I really began to think about uh, like what I wanted to do, you know, at the full uh, going forward. And we have a wonderful program called a sabbatical, which you get to take some time off and um, and and spend time doing whatever whatever you wanted. It was a two month sabbatical to me, and plus I tackled another month of vacation. So <laughs> nice, yeah. And by the way, we we've we've like foolized so many words and terms and concepts of full. I can't believe we're not calling that the full sabbatical, but we don't. We actually sounds like we just call it a sabbatical. Yeah, I'm not sure what a full sabbatical is. I expect <laughs> to get hit with it. <laughs> <laughs> hit over the head for full radical, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> hit over the head. Um, but what was interesting about that is, um, you know, in the CFO slot, I had a lot of things going on, and I, I will give um, you know Tom credit for this when we talked about how we were going to make this happen, and he had me put out a list of all the things uh, that I had on my plate, the things that I um, didn't really enjoy doing, but the things that I had to do because we're all adults and we do them, and then the things that I love to do. Mm. And I brought that list to him and he said, well, why don't we do this? Just do the things you love to do. And I'm like, and you're going to pay me? <laughs> and he said, yes. And I was like, uh, that's awesome. Let's try that. You know. <laughs> and so I went off on my sabbatical and, you know, shed things that just like we talked about in that moment of sitting there looking back on um, what is it that I picked that I love to do and what is it that I spent? actually actually spent my time on on when I was out. And mm-hmm. the only thing that I kept up with on a regular basis was venture capital investing. 
And uh, when I when I came back to work and had a conversation with uh, Tom about what happened, what should we do next? And I was like, I don't know, Tom. I really like this venture capital thing, and maybe I'll just kind of retire and be an angel investor or something like that. And you know, these are, and these I would say these are Tom's exact words, which means they weren't, but let's pretend that they were. That, <laughs> oh, that's a stupid idea. <laughs> he said, "Well, if that's what you want to do, why don't you stay here? We'll let you hire someone to do that to work for you, and then you can keep doing great stuff with me." and I'll do, and you can have this oversee this venture capital stuff. And so I went out and searched far and wide for someone to run the venture capital fund and then came back to Tom and said, Tom, I found the person. (laughs) (laughs) And he's like, who is it? It's me, baby. It's me. (laughs) And so I was able to hire and fire myself simultaneously. Mm. I I quit and rehired. and went on to uh, launch the venture fund. And so in some ways I have, this is the job that I'm doing in my retirement, if you will, that has no Mm -hmm. expiration date. And it's Mm -hmm. doing something that I really uh, enjoy doing. And with the confidence that if I wasn't doing this for the Motley Fool, I still would be doing it. And so Mm -hmm. it's, um, it's uh, puts me in a great place, I think. (laughs) Well said. And it reminds me, and what I said back on that podcast in that chapter was that you took some time away. You gave yourself time, you gave yourself space. And your question to yourself, as I remembered it anyway, was, what does my mind keep going back to? Once you've given yourself time and space, where's the gravity? And the answer for you was venture capital investing, and that's why Motley Fool Ventures exists today. And I, I, I find that an inspiring story, and I, I told it because I want everybody to hear that and think about that for themselves. We don't all have a sabbatical coming up this year or next. We're all at different places in our lives. But when you can find yourself some time and space and then see where you gravitate, that often can help lead you to where you should go next. Well, we're going to talk a lot more about Motley Fool Ventures a little bit later, Olin. But is there anything else you'd like to say just from a biographical standpoint? Either, you know, why do you love this stuff? Did you love it as a kid? Anything else we should know about Olin Douglas before we move on to talking about the allure of venture capital? David, growing up, I had no idea venture capital existed. I had no idea investing existed. Um, it, it wasn't until, you know, watching episodes of, you may have heard of this guy this week with Louis Rukeyser. <laughs> <laughs> Is that right? Yeah. And you're saying that a lot of listeners won't know this, but my one job before The Molly Fool was writing for the newsletter for Louis Rukeyser, the head of PBS's show, Wall Street Week, which yes. was the longest running show on PBS uh, several decades at that point. And so that's how it started for you, Olin. That is how that is how my interest in investing started. I really do credit Rukeyser with democratizing and popularizing investing mm-hmm. in the stock market for many Americans. And yes. that's great to hear that connection. Yeah, yeah. And for me, I think it that started the love of investing. And venture capital really started, you know, once I was um didn't really learn about it until I was kind of cramming for my interview at the Motley Fool <laughs> when I figured I should know a little bit about this venture capital thing. <laughs> and you were venture backed, but uh, we actually became um, almost accidental VCs, if you will, at one point early in our in our history at the Motley Fool in the mid-2000s, 2007, 2008. We had a subsidiary in the uh, UK. And we performed a kind of a management buyout. They wanted to pursue a different business model and we wanted to be supportive of them. And we sold them off and retained 20% of the company. 
And so we're venture capitalists now. Yes, we were venture capitalists. We looked around and said, hey, look at us. Isn't that cool? You know? <laughs> and uh, that turned out to be a, a, a great investment. And it was really, really interesting. And it, and it really kind of cemented the foundation of the, of, the, um, of the fund that we have right now. Because when we structured that deal, it was really about kind of the intersection of purpose and profit. You know, we were trying to do the right thing, but we were trying to set everyone up for this to be a successful, uh, a successful business and a successful transaction as well. And we were able to actually uh, do that. You know, we created a created a new brand. We did a spin out. Uh, that company yep. went on uh, to grow and be acquired by a public company um, over several years. So that turned to be very successful. The Motley Fool has grown on and. It really got me thinking about, you know, that was probably the, the seed planning is, I wonder if we could do this as a business one day. Mm. Yeah. That's a great recounting. And I, I wasn't even connecting that part of our history, but you're absolutely right. We learned how to manage an external investment that wasn't a stock. It was a private company and see that through. A great way to learn things. Training wheels, which we didn't even intend to have on our bicycle. And yet that's how it went. Oh, and let's shift now. I just wanted to spend about five minutes on what I think of as the allure of venture capital, a word I used earlier in this podcast. What what typically interests and excites people in the world, especially people who become limited partners, which is, I think, the term we use to describe somebody who's in a venture capital fund? What interests and excites them? I think a lot of people are drawn to uh, being LPs in venture funds because of the potential returns. Um, I will give you a, a great e example. I know WeWork obviously was in the, the news and not in a good way. <laughs> yes, um, WeWork, so, the, the provider of office space. Yes, yeah, so provider of office space uh, where they had uh, were on the verge of going public and there was a somewhat of a minor implosion and you know, lots of- A couple of uh, years back. A yep. couple of years back, a lot of derision pointed their way. But uh, what people don't realize is that even, even after their downturn, those investors that were early investors in WeWork um, had to figure out a way to reconcile the fact that they, was, that they were still had 100x <laughs> in that investment. And so for the people wow. who are early stage investors, and they end up investing in a company that goes all the way public, the returns are just incredible. And I think a lot of people are attracted to the potential for the returns. And mm -hmm. part of our job is to make sure they understand the probabilities of that and the risk associated. But what really excites me, and for me, the allure of venture capital is that, can you tell me um, a favorite rule breaker stock, David? So not the favorite, just a favorite. Sure. A favorite. I mean, I, I led off with it as an example earlier. Zoom, Zoom. is a pretty great company. Right. It's a company my brother Tom first recommended Stock Advisor. I then took a shine to it in Rule Breakers. Many, many Motley Fool members. Many people listening right now may well own some ticker symbol ZM, by the way, not Z-O-O-M people, <laughs> but Zoom. So yeah, and a lot of us know the brand and know the business today. So Zoom. Olin, what about Zoom? And so the question would be, so what really excites me about venture capital and the CEO of Zoom is Eric uh, Wan? Is that right? Yeah, that's yeah. exactly right. Eric Wan. And so what's really excites me about uh, venture capital, we do the some of the earlier companies in venture capital, is that idea of meeting Eric 
and him saying, I have this idea of Zoom and I have <laughs> 10 companies <laughs> that are using this and I believe it's going to change the world. And you listen to these founders and it's as if you can see the future before it arrives. And that is... Mm. um. And to be to play a role in helping that future come alive is what really excites me about being an investor in venture capital. And I think that can be the allure as well. And that's really well described. And I think we can all imagine iconically having been in that room first with Steve Jobs as he explained what Apple might be. Or sometimes I think about Jack Dorsey, who has a couple of successful companies at this point, but especially like first explaining Twitter. 140 characters. That probably just sounded crazy. And yet he did get the backing, went on to create something worth tens of billions of dollars today. So yeah, Olin, I think a lot of us as public market investors, what we see is we see the public company. That's when we can become investors in the company. And we're excited about the potential for 10x or 100x returns from that point. But venture capitalists, as that company comes public, let's say with a $15 billion market cap, that means somebody was in there probably at about a million dollars or 15 million. And so they already have enjoyed substantial returns. And so it's starting that compounding clock at a lower cost basis even earlier. That seems to be, yes, a big part of the allure. Yes, it is. And I I think you're right. I mean, I think those things are just kind of being on the forefront of history and the potential returns from the wins is is what largely gets people excited. And you know the funny thing about that, Olin, is that what we see is is the successes, right? Because the public markets, even if the stock doesn't do that well, which some don't, uh, at least they made it to become public, which is very hard to do. There are a lot of a lot of blood, sweat, and tears even to get to that point. But we tend to see there's a survivorship bias as investors. We tend to see all the ones that show up. We don't really have awareness. A lot of us just how many companies try and never make it to that point. And as we move on to this next section of our conversation, Olin, which I'm calling the world of venture capital, just writ large here, I want us to talk some about how venture capital works and what the the world of the big picture looks like. I was thinking about asking you roughly what percentage of venture-backed companies succeed by becoming a public company. If you had to guess... If you had to guess from their early seed stages. My guess is that it's probably less than 1%. Somewhere around that number is what you hear from time to time, maybe 1% of the company. So you invest in 100 companies, maybe one uh, will go public. And generally what people say is maybe that 1% are your huge outsized winners. So they may go public or they may be, um, there may be someone like an Instagram, which never went public, but got bought for a billion dollars by Facebook. And I think yep. that's kind of a win as well because they only had 19 employees. <laughs> yeah, going going <laughs> wow. Going public isn't the only route to success. And in fact, I think what you're suggesting to us, Olin, when you say one in a hundred get there, there are some winners outside. It's not like 99 others lost. There's a bunch of wins within that. I'm not sure. Maybe you can help us with some big picture thinking in terms of percentages again. What percentage of 100 startups, in your mind, provide an exit that is, maybe it got bought by somebody else, uh, that is desirable and has people around the table happy? Roughly, what percentage of startups achieve that? Yeah, I think most venture funds look at um, their, their portfolios and say that 
10% of the companies or 20% of the companies. It's like the 80-20, 90-10 rule. So it's, okay. a, it's a small number of companies that are overwhelming wins. And generally speaking, roughly half will generate some return and half will generate, you know, None. <laughs> or no return. Return. You will lose. You will lose money on at least half. There's another forty percent that will make some kind of return that is okay, and then that final ten percent is where all the uh, all the big wins are. But what's interesting hmm. about that, David? Another thing I'll add to that is what most people don't realize is from a from if you look at what happens to private companies, probably the biggest exit by far. The biggest, maybe half of the companies that have a positive exit or negative are bought by either other f- companies or by private equity. So, and M and A is by far the number one outcome of an investment in a private company. Mergers and acquisitions. Mergers and another company comes in and buys that company. In our fund that we have today, we have three companies so far in three years that have already been. Um, that have had what we call an exit, which is just a liquidity event, which means money kind of comes back to the company. And all three of those were purchased by public companies. So hmm. none of none of them um, went public themselves, but they had found homes as units inside of larger corporations. And Motley Fool Ventures, we'll talk a little bit more about that later, but has about 30 holdings, right? So you're saying about 10% so far in just three years in of a 10-year fund, uh, roughly 10% of them have already kind of exited. They've sold their businesses to somebody else, generally at favorable terms. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> dot, dot, dot. <laughs> right. Because and Olin just laid down a really important number of fellow fools everywhere. He said 50% of the investments that you make in a venture capital fund return zero. So when we talk about rule breaker investing, and we talk about the public markets where we're no, we know we're going to lose a lot. We don't go to zero very often with even some of my worst stock picks. I haven't quite hit zero. So this is a good example of how different these forms of investing are, or at least the mindset that you have to have as you enter into venture capital investing. Flip a coin, that thing may be dust <laughs> within weeks or months, or you could hit it big. Right, and exactly, and the thing that the, the the thing that makes it really challenging, David, is that um, it often takes a long time before you know, and you know the businesses don't grow in straight lines, and probably mm. every successful business, the Motley Fool included, has a story about when they were near death and had to overcome that, and part of venture capital is having that patience um, and really trying to figure out what are the signs of success that you can see even in the darkest days. Well said. Let's go through the ABCs a little bit of venture capital. And I'm quite literally thinking about Series A, Series B, and Series C. So again, a lot of our listeners have no experience in venture capital. And so we're going to break down some of our terms here. The way I think of it anyway is some some bright person has an idea. They need some money to make that happen. Often, the first thing they do is they look for what is called, I think, seed capital. And they're looking for a so-called angel. It might be a family member, might be a friend, somebody's rich uncle. They need somebody to write them that first check. Is that the seed round? And is that how things start? Um, yes, it is. And and even and it starts actually even a little bit earlier than that. And that's something we have something now called pre-seed now. And uh, typically, um, 
people start with ideas and there's a variety of things, whether it's that person that you know that can invest in it. There are groups called incubators and accelerators, which will take people who have ideas and will work with them to form it into a business and a structure. But that is the very first stage. It's when you're getting going. And then those angel investors, which are usually individuals, they write checks between 5000 and you know, 250000 If you're above that, you're like a super angel. But th- those are your angel investors that will come in. They accept a lot more risk. They're really betting on the person. Usually they have some sort of association, whether they're mm-hmm. experts in that field or they know that person or something like that to support them. But that is the highest, um, that is that is high risk and, and somewhat specialized investing. But that is your seed stage. Okay. And so um, angel investors, and in, for example, in the Washington, D.C. area, there are groups of them. Mm-hmm. They meet together and People come and pitch them. And so these are higher net worth people usually mm-hmm. who can write a check like that. All right. Well, I always thought of seed rounds, but now, because I know the right people and I'm sharing him with you this week, I now know there are pre-seed rounds. So we got pre-seed rounds, seed rounds, but then comes what is called in the parlance Series A. Now, I know this is a specialty of yours, Olin, because this is where Motley Fool Ventures focuses. But there's Series A, which is you know a little bit bigger than seed. And then B, a little bit bigger than A, sometimes a lot bigger than A, and then C, which can be quite big. These are successive larger and larger rounds at the appropriate stages of these companies' growth. Yes, and that is correct. And I think while, as you may imagine, the labels, uh, the exact definitions of them aren't entirely clear in, you know, there's also a West Coast Series A versus an East Coast Series A. Oh, it's, it's like football and the offenses. <laughs> right, exactly. Very much like that. The West Coast A is not not much different than a West Coast offense. It is uh, it is high <laughs> octane <laughs> in, every sense, in yep. every sense of the way. But generally speaking, that Series A is roughly considered qualitatively your first level of professional investing where you have some traction, mm. you have customers, you have, you're beyond a proof of concept. You have something where you're really starting to scale that. And with each level, kind of the expectations of well, every company has kind of performance and potential, uh, performance versus potential. And as each stage, what they're looking for really is your potential to become clearer and clearer and clearer with each stage, but Mm -hmm. your performance also is expected to go up with each and each stage. Yeah. You you can't just keep keep selling people on your song once you get far enough through the lyrics. <laughs> you're going to need to start you're going to really need to start singing. And yes. so let, let's let's just double back there for a quick second give our listeners some round numbers Olin. Series A investments. Typically, how much money comes to a company from Series A and roughly what is the size of that business? I realize this is very subjective. It's kind of like saying small cap stocks. A lot of people have different numbers in their mind when they think about what a mid-cap is. So let's put some stakes in the ground on this. What's a Series A company? Yeah, got it. So I will say that uh, that number has moved and it's and everything is increasing. The old the old A is now the seed and the old seed is now the pre-seed. So but true. In, in this day and age, I think that most people look at a Series A company of someone that is generating at a minimum uh, kind of one to three million dollars of of 
on a, on a trajectory of one to three million dollars a year in revenue of revenue, of okay, revenue yep. going up, and then those companies that are doing that generally have valuations anywhere from ten to thirty million dollars, forty million dollars, okay, fifty million. It depends on how 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 much that revenue grows, and very much like rule breakers, David. Uh, these companies, the key metric for these, what we call early stage. We're talking about that those companies with less than ten million in revenue or something. Those early stages are revenue multiples, where we look at the value of the company mm-hmm. and looking at the structure, and you apply a multiple to that revenue, and that could be as low as in venture capital. You generally don't get venture capital investment if you're if you can't. If someone's not willing to pay at least five times your revenue, maybe four times at the low end, but people can pay up to 20 times, depending on how fast you're growing. And just to put, and to put a little marker on that, David, just to think about the type of companies, typically the companies we invest in, we look for them to be growing at a, at a minimum of 100% a year. And then that's that's the bar that we're looking for. So, it's a so one to three bar. million revenues headed to five to 10 to 15 really fast. Uh, at least for Motley Fool Ventures. I'm sure there are some slower growers out there, and there are different styles. It's it's hard to generalize. I'm being unfair to Olin by asking him to give real numbers to A, B, and C, <laughs> but that's why I have Olin on, because I can be unfair to him, and he can be unfair back. <laughs> Olin, I took questions in advance of this podcast from some of our listeners, at David J underscore Vance on Twitter. Had a few questions, and they're now relevant for this part of our conversation. David asked, how do funding rounds work? Uh, seed round, Series A funding. When does a company conduct a new round? So, for example, you just gave us the numbers for A. At what point is the chief financial officer, if they have one yet, of that company thinking about Series B? What is the scale and numerical expectations from that transition from A to B? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I love that because it really highlights something that we probably should have talked about before, like the biggest difference between public company investing and private company investing is that um, in the public world, you do your research or you find a company, you do your research and you decide to invest. And it really is an individual exercise. Uh, For private company investing, you can do your research, you can find a company, and that's just the beginning of it. Because uh, in some form or fashion, you have to connect with that founder get their permission to invest in them. And then depending on what role you play, negotiate the terms and the price of that investment. And so it's all a relationship. It's all negotiated. And mm. that's what makes it really difficult. And for example, at one point I owned Apple and Microsoft and to no one's uh, surprise, I didn't have to ask Bill Gates or uh, Steve Jobs if that was okay. And, and mm-hmm. I didn't have to explain to them when I sold either um, mm. because this, in the private world, you, are, you have that flexibility to solely think about yourself. In the private space, that would be problematic to be investing in Apple, especially back in that early stage, to be investing in direct competitors and for instance, hmm. for our fund, we have to have, we do as a policy, if we think there's a competitive investment, we talk to both of the CEOs and they both have to say it's okay or we won't do it because there's a relationship business and you that don't- That is a big difference between yeah. that and individual <laughs> investing in public stocks. You're absolutely right. right. And, and that leads up to the point of, so what typically happens when you invest and you negotiate that price, someone is telling you the story of their business 
and they're saying that I want to accomplish this goal. I have a milestone that I'm trying to reach. If you invest X dollars, that will be sufficient for me to hit this milestone and which will increase my value. Um, and so the answer to the question with that backdrop, and this goes through all the stages, mm-hmm. founders set milestones. They raise capital on a promise of delivering those milestones. And when they deliver those milestones or when they have clear visibility into those milestones, they try to raise money or when they've spent the money and still haven't hit the milestones, but still need more money, they go back out and try to raise with revised expectations. And so, so of- is that is that a fairly clear binary distinction that you would make? And I realize we're more focused on Series A at Motley Fool Ventures, so I'm not asking a Series A guy a Series B question. But would it typically be that next stage, you're either hitting it and you have the performance to show people, or you specifically haven't, and both of them want money, but maybe for slightly different reasons. Uh, yes. <laughs> in okay. A, in a perfect way. And it, it is, it, this is kind of stage agnostic, but generally speaking, companies want to accomplish a long-term goal. They have to break it up into chunks and they raise around delivering those chunks. But life happens in between every single one. And I would say the majority of companies, like I said, businesses don't grow to the right and up without uh, breaks. I mean, life happened, COVID happens. And, and you know, most of the business plans for 2020 were thrown out the window, but you still have employees and you still have expenses and you're still trying to, to do sales. And mm. so companies sometimes, and, and not unusual, get low on cash and may need to raise before they're ready. And that's where the negotiations come in. Well, you know, and price may go down, you know, or yeah, and you know. and that's that's where I want to hit back to David Vance's close up his question because Olin he asked, how is a private company valued by VC investors, and how does a private company decide how many stock shares to approve or issue, and they're worth each? Basically, a lot of us um, are used to knowing already how many shares are outstanding are there for a public company, and there are ratios we can run and computers that are helping us parse the data. But in these cases, the timing of when you raise money has a sounds like a huge effect over the valuation you're going to get. Timing matters a lot in venture capital investing. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's a huge component. And it's also the metrics are a little bit different. Uh, the idea of the percentage of a company that you own is something that's very, very relevant in private company investing. But I was thinking about this the other day when I was having a discussion, <laughs> we'll call it, where uh, if, if any of us who own private stocks, we open up our statement, the two numbers we see are the number of shares we own and the price per share. If you want to know what percentage of a company you own, that's a research exercise. <laughs> Ooh, that is a big difference. Yeah, that is big. This is a huge difference. But in the private company investing, founders think about it as a pie. I have a pie that's 100%. And every time I raise money, I am basically selling off a piece of that pie. But and the rest of the pieces of the pie don't necessarily have that much awareness or knowledge of it. Uh, yeah, yeah. And so, but in private companies like the founders and, and the other investors, we do know what percentage. I, it's funny, I have a better chance of guessing the percentage of a company I own than the number of shares that I own. Mm. Because we're really looking at growing the value of the entire company and we think, what is our percentage of that? And the number of shares 
is just a mathematical exercise. Just like, you know, in the other world, you know, the, the valuation is a, the, the, you know, the company is an exercise. So for us, percentage ownership is important because I need that company that is worth 10 million and I buy 10%. I want that company to go to, and this, the math doesn't work like this, but I, <laughs> I want that company to go to a billion so that my 10% is now worth, you know, a hundred million. Right. And so that's how we look at it. You're looking at the dollars that I invest and what those dollars will be worth mm. when this company reaches that point where, where it sells or goes public. Well, certainly public companies do use the public markets to launch secondary offerings and raise money that way. But there is a constant expectation for early stage companies that you are going to be diluted, that they're going to be raising more and more money. And sometimes if they have a really big, exciting round later on, that may seem great. But if that takes that $1 million that you injected, which was really important to you early stage, they've succeeded so hugely that you have nothing like a 100x return because the constant dilution and sometimes big money piling in and series B, C, and even D, I don't know, before IPO can really change the game. Yeah. And those letters go up. And usually what they talk about is, uh, you know, A and B, you know, it's like early stage, and then you have C, D, and E, or late stage. And then you have, after that, you have growth, which is like pre-IPO is kind of part of growth, or sometimes people call it right there. But those general categories, and you're right, dilution is um, really important. And that's what really takes... Um, venture capital from an art to a science to some degree, because it is that part of venture capital is very much numbers driven and you have mm. to understand the math and the mechanics. We had an investor uh, in the Molly Fool with a company called uh, Mayfield. His name was Alan Morgan. I consider him a mentor. And I remember Alan Morgan once saying, Olin, give me the price or the terms and I can get any deal done. You know? <laughs> and it speaks to the idea that there's so much power in the terms around an investment that, um, you know, for example, if you have a company you think is worth a million and you want me to pay a, you know, $10 million for it, I mean, that may be unreasonable. What I can say to you is, sure, I'll invest uh, in that company. But in the terms, I will say I get the first $10 million that comes out of it. <laughs> yeah. And so, you you know, basically you can take the terms and capture all of the value of a company and not have it show up in the price. It just shows So up. one thing I'm picking up from you, Olin, is that, and again, contrasting with what I do, which is buy public market stocks, there are a few key skills I never have to use doing what I do that you have to have. And it strikes me, one of them is something like emotional intelligence and probably some wisdom because I, I could talk to my Zoom stock all day long and it won't listen to me or really care. And it'll keep moving and the price will be real and it'll be liquid every minute. But on the other hand, emotional intelligence to work with founders, first of all, to ferret out who are going to be the good ones or not, but then also your fellow investors because usually... Venture capital funds aren't the only single source. They pile together their money for each of these rounds. So you're working with your peers. And so emotional intelligence helps there, but also negotiating feels like that's a big part of what you do, Olin. I don't think I'm good at that at all. I'm glad you're doing that. But have I accurately pulled out a couple of attributes that are important for somebody in your position that a lot of us should know about? Uh, yeah, it is. It is that emotional intelligence, uh, the negotiating. And as uh, Brendan Matthew, a, a VP on the team, likes to say, the average venture capital investment 
lasts longer than the average marriage. And so, <laughs> wow. Yes. And so you are going into a long-term relationship and uh, it's important who you go into that relationship with. And it's important that you can communicate because there will be ups and downs. And a lot of it really is just being clear on your role, um, the role that you're going to play for that company. Uh, as you can imagine, um, at some point, maybe not in the early stage, but at some point, everyone wanted to invest in Zoom as a private company, right? Um, and, and, you know, the CEO had a choice of who uh, he would allow to invest in his company. Mm-hmm. And so everyone Great is telling position him, to be in. Yeah, everyone is telling him the wonderful things that they can do. Uh, and, you know, he has to decide which one of those people are doing the things that he needs and what does he value from an investor and who has that reputation of being able to deliver what they're promising. Well, and beforehand, we were talking offline, and let's now shift into venture capital investing. Just some tips and tricks and some wisdom from you, this section of our conversation for a few minutes. You were saying that venture capital investing at its core, now that you've been doing it successfully, may I add, for three years now, is only three questions. What are your three questions that summarize venture capital investing at its core? Okay, so I'm going to... uh take this uh, from a rule breaker's perspective and really uh, break it down. But there's really three questions that a VC wants to know. And um, you won't see these phrased this way in many places, but at its core, this is what's going on. And the three points, David, are number one, do I like you? (laughs) Number two, do you know what you're doing? And number three, (laughs) can I make money? (laughs) (laughs) and we will find a thousand ways to get comfortable with the answers to those three questions and you can double click and do i like you is not just a personal interaction while that's important because again Mm -hmm. we're going into a professional marriage and so Mm -hmm. i do have to like actually like you and there's some people people who Mm -hmm. don't feel that way but you know but it's also are our core values compatible? That's probably more mm. what you're trying to find. Are you trying to accomplish something that aligns with what I want to affiliate myself uh, with? And so that's kind of behind it. Do I like it? Is that really, are you trying to do, is what you're trying to do align with what I'm trying to do? And Love so that one. My, so, and I get, do I like you? And that we're going to get, uh, we'll do a short bit on the six uh, traits of rule breaker investors' stocks and, uh, and make some comparisons. So, let's park that for now. Do I like you? But I certainly get the human element that you're speaking to there. Olin, do you know what you're doing? Your second question <laughs> that, that made me laugh earlier. And what do you mean when you ask, do you know what you're doing? And that is, uh, can you uh, convince the VC? that you have a particular uh, expertise. And the funny part about that, David, is that sometimes the real question is, do I know what you're doing? <laughs> because, ah, yeah. <laughs> because, because if somebody's talking about some machine learning and you're not actually that versed yourself in AI and machine learning, it's not necessarily on them, although I hope they're a good communicator and could make it communicable to you, but it's actually partly on, on you, I, I suppose. And, and maybe let's, let's, let's make that a little more humble one. Number two, it's, am I smart enough to know, to understand what you're doing? <laughs> yeah. How about, how about, do we know what each other is doing? <laughs> or yes, do we both know what you're trying to do? <laughs> right. 
<laughs> right. Exactly. So this does seem particularly pertinent, but at least the heart of it initially, Olin, to return to a slightly more serious angle here is, you know, you're you're trying to figure out if this person can they may have a great idea. Can they operate or do they can they actually build a team that will make this cuz it's not going to be one person both dreaming it up and operating it. You need to be able to be a leader of people who are inspired by a vision that might be technologically driven and isn't that easy to achieve. That's why they're asking for capital. Right. It's like, what are your execution chops? Like, how, how are you going to turn this idea into reality? Because the unfortunate, the unfortunate reality, David, is there are a zillion great ideas out there. I mean, they just really are. People tend to overestimate the value of an idea alone. What really mm-hmm. separates that idea from the uh, in, investable business is the person that can execute on that idea and is willing to take that that risk and that effort. And there's so many aspects of that, from truly knowing your market to actually building a good product or service, to keeping track of your finances and all of the things that need to happen generally well for something to thrive. And it's not trivial. And it's it's something I deeply respect. And that's one of the reasons I love investing, is finding these kinds of people and possibilities when they really can deliver. You know, Seth Godin, who was on this podcast a few years ago, I'm a big Seth Godin fan, the business author. He agrees with you. He was saying, the world doesn't need another great idea. You got a great idea? Great. You got a great idea. So many great ideas. That's not what we need. We need people who can actually execute and turn a great idea into a great reality. That that sounds like it's the Olin Douglas school of thinking when it comes to what's really needed out there. Exactly, David. And uh, that third point, as we kind of move to that, is the question of, can I make money off of that business? <laughs> Which is separate. You can get the first two right and still not be able to say yes to the third. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I think about some of the, uh, when we were in Old Town Alexandria, that has lots of small shops. There are plenty of places where you can go and get a great little lunch. You know, I remember a little restaurant called Pat Troy's and they had just an Awesome right chicken salad. Right near Village Q in Alexandria, Virginia, here in the U.S. Yes, a great chicken salad, did you say? A great chicken salad sandwich. I loved it. But you know what? I'd go and buy one, and it was awesome. Uh, there was no way I would invest in that as a business. <laughs> <laughs> what they did was great. But in order for that venture capital to get the returns it needs uh, to, to, to generate the, the, the profits that I need, it has to scale to a tremendous size. And there are plenty of businesses out there that are outstanding, that are wonderful, but they're just not right for venture capital. Um, mm. I, I sometimes think about our venture capital fund. We generally won't put less than $500,000 into a company. And so if you're a business and you think $500,000 is a lot, um, you're probably not uh, – Betting for venture capital because those are companies that by the end of the day could easily have a hundred million dollars put into them to deliver the returns that, that we're looking mm. for. And that really is just totally different scale. And it's worth remembering. And yeah, there are so many great small businesses across America and so many people of heart and character who deliver a fine product or service every day out of their food truck or they're working within nursing, or there's so many side gigs and lots of great work being done. But the rarefied space of real scale yes. is where venture capital, that rubber hits the road for the the industry. And so 
And so, Olin, let's let's move now at the conclusion of our conversation to Motley Fool Ventures. I'm, you know, we've referenced it a number of times, but can you just give a few of the statistics about the size of the fund, what you've seen so far in the first three years? Give us a quick overview. This is not a sales pitch, people, because it's already a fund. It's already been funded. This is an educational exercise, learning from somebody who is in the fourth year of building this plane as he flies it, and he's sharing his pilot insights with you and me. And so I would say that, uh, thank you for that, David. And that's correct. Uh, we're not um, we're not raising capital now, so please don't view this as a solicitation because it is not. Um, but the Motley Pool Ventures, we consider ourselves an early stage fund, which means we invest in that Series A, which you said several times, which is around that level. Sometimes we do a little bit less, sometimes we do a little bit more, but that is our sweet spot. We are we focus on companies that we look for. It's um, it's not so much exclusively kind of the next rule breaker per se, but there are not a lot of analogies. We are looking for companies that are trying to solve large problems. We like the Motley Fool, which we are you know a subsidiary of. Are uh, find a great appeal in companies that are using technology in innovative ways, and so many of the companies we invest in, we call them tech enabled, which means they're using technology to drive scale, efficiency, or access in what we call really large markets. That means that we can see opportunities for several companies to be billion dollar companies in those markets. Um, and paint, paint a couple examples. Um, you can name names if you like or not, but what are a couple examples of companies that look like that? Sure. Um, we uh, just recently, and you can see in the news, uh, I think there's been a lot of publication around it. We just invested last week in a company called Isuzu, E-S-U-S-U. So not Joe, not Joe Isuzu here. This is, this is, this is, this is, there's no Z's or I's. It's E-S-U-S-U. That is Suzu. Right. And okay. you'll, you'll see lots of headlines. There was uh, uh, Serena Williams, the tennis star, invested in Yeah, I did see a story, and it was all about how Serena was investing in Isuzu. But wait, weren't we the lead investor in this one? <laughs> yes, we were the lead investor. But I, I did not realize this, but it turns out that Serena is more well-known than I am, David. <laughs> Well, that's fine. It's good to be on her team. Let's put it that way. But so what is Isuzu doing? What they're doing is trying to address a problem of people in America that do not have uh, credit reports or credit files. There's 45 million Americans without them. And so when you hear stories about the average American not being able to cover a $400 bill or $1,000 out of their savings, Mm. more likely than not, you're talking about people that don't have access to credit. And while we all know the dangers of credit, if you don't have it, you usually you end up with an existence of either being subjected to payday loans or living a cash-based existence, which just limits your ability to grow, to build wealth, and to, to reach that financial stability that we all want. And so when you think about a company trying to solve a problem that 45 million Americans address- That's scale. That's scale. That's um, what we're talking about. And they're doing it from a, a unique way of, of working with property owners. So instead of trying to solve that problem one person at a time, they're solving it one apartment building, one property owner at a time. So they're doing it in a very efficient way. Um, and they're addressing a market that's been underserved. So it's like kind of access. So they're really ticking all the boxes of what we think uh, a, a company needs to do to be able to grow 
and and really solve a, a problem that if they do solve it, it's it's in their case, which we really love, is additive to the economy. You know, you're talking about people who are being left out. And as we create situations where they can get financial security and start to generate wealth on their own, it benefits all of us. So it sounds like a great idea. I sure hope it works out for Serena and us. <laughs> and I'm curious, Olin, roughly when did you first hear about that company? How long did we do due diligence? What's a typical time frame between the announcement last week and when we first heard about it? This one is a record for us, David. We, I was introduced to the CEO, his name is Abby Wamimo, uh, two years ago. <laughs> and we hit it off. And I've been kind of informally advising him building that relationship Wow! Uh, for a couple of years. And and it's a genuine relationship. I, I, I genuinely like him and his co-founder, Samir. And they were too early for us when it came time to invest. They weren't at the, the targets we were, but we kind of kept in touch. I've helped them. They've made introductions for me. And so when the time came to do this round, um, we had that relationship. We had dated, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, it two became, years. Yeah, two years. But typically speaking, um, it's probably closer to something measured in, in in months between the time you meet someone and the time you invest, anywhere from mm-hmm. three to six months. And then the investing process itself, instead of going onto your discount broker, finding it and clicking buy, I mean, just the transactional portion can easily be a month just by itself. Mm. So, Olin, give us an overview, just briefly, like how much money is in Motley Fool Ventures? How many companies? And what's the what's the skinny there? Sure. So, the short version is we have $150 million, which are commitments, which is the sum of what our LPs have uh, given us to invest on their behalf. We have plans to invest in 40 to 50 companies is the range that we said. We're at 30 now. We may end up a little bit outside that range, probably maybe, if anything, on the lower side of that. Um, and um, as you mentioned, David, it's generally venture capital. You invest in the money and you're locked into this, which is something to understand. And I think that's important because of the volatility. It's easy to get shaken out if you weren't locked in. <laughs> um, but it's a 10-year fund. And with the idea that... Um, the money that is committed to the Motley Fool comes in over a certain period of time, usually you know the first five years. And that second five years are companies growing and uh, developing and then finding their exit, whether it's um, being bought out by someone, whether it's going public, whether it's like the Motley Fool deciding that you know the, the, the IPO route is not right for them right now and they're buying their investors back or for those companies that don't um, succeed. And what I always find funny about venture capital, uh, David, is that in most of the descriptions of what happens to companies that uh, VCs invest in, they use the term fail to describe a, a big portion of those companies. And on a technical term, the Motley Pool would be considered a failure in the sense that uh, we didn't go public. And we weren't bought by someone mm. and we paid uh, our investors back and it wasn't um, it wasn't that 100x that, you know, you look for even that 10x. And oddly enough, for the cohort we were in, it just it wasn't actually a bad investment, <laughs> yep. given that, you know, those people came in in 2001 or whatever. But yep. yeah, but failure from the VC perspective often means that the venture capital fund didn't make the returns that they wanted, which is in, in a nuanced way, 
different than um, how we describe failure. We like to say we didn't get our returns. Sure. I mean, I often just try to beat the market. When I pick a stock or a five-stock sampler or a whole portfolio, I hope it'll beat the market. I don't necessarily target a specific return and say, I think that it should be this. But um, understandably, that is often how uh, venture capital investments are conceived. And so they have a, a, a hit rate or a fail rate based on their expectations, not necessarily whether the thing was was good ultimately, right? Because or not? Yeah, from the portfolio side, there are return expectations. Generally speaking, you know they are looking to get an annualized return of twenty percent on their money. But big um, money—that's yeah, a big number. It's a big number, <laughs> and it's to justify the risk. Well, I know that numbers aren't always public. This is, after all, private market investing, Olin. But you mentioned Motley Fool Ventures, a hundred fifty million dollar fund. Let's just pretend that Isuzu is your very favorite investment. It's, and I'm not saying it is. I don't actually know. I'm not on the team. But what portion of your $150 million portfolio could you put in your very favorite investment? Ballpark. Very good. Well, if Isuzu is listening to this podcast, yes, you are my favorite investor. <laughs> <laughs> and if my other companies are listening, you too are my favorite investor. <laughs> yeah. And so what you're talking about there, David, is portfolio construction. So I can abstract away from uh, Isuzu a little bit and I can talk... Um, uh, more freely in our fund documents, we can put up to 10% of that money into one company. So huh. we could put up to $15 million into a single company. As I talked about before, we can't, we don't put less than 500000 into any company. When you think about $150 million, I can't invest that $1 million or I can't miss that $10,000 at a time. I'll be, I'll be dead before I get it all <laughs> to, to work. Yep. Right. So, um, and generally speaking, again, with that 30 to 40 or 40 to 50 companies, whatever, we tend to write that, you know, that typical million dollar check. And our, our the companies that perform the best will be in that kind of 10 to 15 million dollar range to companies that don't probably a little bit less. Mm. We look at it as a long term relationship. So our first check is not our only check if companies perform. So we build over time. So a Series A fund. When a company succeeds and they've actually hit their metrics and they're ready for Series B, you are invited in by the big, big-shouldered B players who say, <laughs> you know, let's throw them a bone there. They were there in Series A. Is that typically how it works? Uh, no, it's worse but better. <laughs> <laughs> Do say. <laughs> so typically in your terms that we talked about before, if you're a Series A investor and we have a right uh, – to invest in a second round of what we call mm. pro rata. So if we own 10% of the company, we get a right to invest at least 10% of into the next round so that we can keep our ownership percentage. So that's how we manage dilution. The reason I laughed is because when that big bone series B investor comes in, depending on how much they're investing and how much uh, you know they want to value their company, they may come in and say, you know what? I'm going to quadruple the value of the company and uh, I'm going to take your pro rata rights, as we call them. I'm going to ball them up and light them on fire and toss them off the back deck. <laughs> <laughs> so so make, make, the, make this real for us. I think this may have happened to us. You're not going to name names or numbers, but 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 what what is happening exactly? Like I thought that we had the pro rata, but, but then is it that they jack up the valuation so high that we can't participate now? Uh, yeah, it's that depending on the situation that the company is in, um, basically there's this invitation 
to come in to invest. It always happens. The first time it happens is just the CEO that says, yes, you're invited in. But right. as the round goes, every time someone's added to the table, uh, that investor um, that already did there, they get part of part say. So like, for example, when a Suzu comes in, if someone comes in and says, hey, well, in the next round, in order for this to work for me, because I have a trillion dollar fund, I need, and they only want to raise 50 million, I need to put all 50 in me myself. And I'm like, well, mm. I don't want that because I think they're going to keep going. And they're like, well, what if I value the company so that your X is worth 5X in one year? when you let these stupid pro rider rights go. And you know, and even if I say no, if all the other investors around say yes. <laughs> right, doesn't matter what you think. So a lot of us as individual investors in public market companies, we want to pick the right stocks, right? That's a big thing that I think about. I want to own this one, not those other ones. And so that's step one. Step two is, you know, what size will this position be for my portfolio? You mentioned portfolio construction for you as a venture capitalist, Olin, but there's this third step, which you kind of need to do, which I don't really do, which is to try to maintain parity or, again, through some combination of negotiation and emotional intelligence, you're actually jockeying for position in a way that the rest of us don't normally have to think about. Yeah. And I will say, David, that is the advantage of um, being in a venture fund. Um, you know, there aren't a lot of individuals that have 150 million to go about the world kind of investing in it. And so when you invest through a fund, you give up some control, so to say, over what you, you pick, because it's kind of like a blind pool. You're giving us money and you don't have a say on which companies you invest in, but you do have the, the security that you have professionals, um, you bet. You know, investing on your behalf and using your collective uh, capital to make sure that if you're going to get pushed around, someone's pushing you around for a pile of money and not pushing you around with a full batical. Well said. Well, Olin, I promised earlier, and I want to deliver on that promise here at the end, that I would reshare the six traits of rule breaker investing, which I've talked about and written about ad nauseum. And I'm curious how they grade out in terms of how well they work or matter for you as a Series A-focused venture capital managing director. Will you play the game with me? I would love to play that game, David. Great. So maybe like a minute on each. The first one is looking for a stock, a company that is a top dog and first mover in an important emerging industry. How well does that grade out for you? That one, I would say, if I put them in high, medium, and low, I would say that one is a medium. You're certainly looking for companies um, that seem to have an advantage over the competition. But they're all so early that it's really hard to definitively say mm. who's the top dog because there are many, many companies <laughs> trying to do things, you know, taking similar, different approaches to solve similar problems. So yeah. you're really more looking more for absolute success than relative. Yeah. So it really does become more evident as companies mature and industries start to mature who is the actual leader. It's just not that evident at this early stage when you have 23 different people with their idea about how to add machine learning to coffee. Because <laughs> it's all about ideas, right? Anybody can have an idea. Yes. All right. So that that's great. So that's medium for number one. Number two is a sustainable 
competitive advantage. Of course, that can be measured in much different ways. Often having a visionary founder would be an example. Um, sometimes inept competition, sometimes patents. There are lots of forms of advantage, but we're looking for a sustainable competitive advantage. How does that grade out? Yeah. And I think that one is high. And that kind of goes to that idea we talked about before. Do you know what you're doing, right? <laughs> you know, have you, can you articulate a mousetrap that genuinely sounds like it's better uh, than what we're doing? And can you describe that mousetrap in a way that doesn't lend itself to be replicated by the next company that comes along? So that one is really important. And I think there's, um, there's a lot of uh, similarities with that one. Trait number three of the rule breaker stock is strong past price appreciation. Now, that's very easy to see when you have public market companies with real-time graphs and historical data for how their stock has done. And you know the importance of that. I've often said, and last week, Frank Reich said it again, he even gave me a little bit of credit for it, but winners win. So obviously, when we're talking about Series A, there's not that much history. But do you see something, a proxy or an analog for strong past price appreciation that grades out well or not for you? Yes, I would put that high if we can use a proxy. And that would be Strong past revenue growth, which is mm. when we look at that. If you have, if you have a history of growing your revenue, um, like I said, at those at those levels, which we do at Molly Pool Ventures, which is not unusual, and so people are looking. I mean, at fifty percent growth, we start to scratch our heads and say, "What's wrong?" Right. <laughs> mm. So strong past uh, revenue growth is really really important. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Trade number four: good management and smart backing. It's the humanity. I can't imagine this grades out poorly. Uh, it's got to be at least a medium for you, Olin. And I've thrown you in there too because you're the backers. And often when people look at trait number four of Rule Breakers stocks, they're just thinking about the CEO and they're saying, is this a visionary founder I believe in? But no, I also care about who's backing them, what we can learn from them. So you're not going to give yourself a, a, a meaningless grade, are you, Olin? Uh, I would say for most uh, venture capitalists, uh, if we were to break that into two pieces, it's a high, high. Honestly, David, mm. for the Motley Fool Ventures, it's a high, low. Uh, we want smart, great people. The venture capital, venture capital as an industry has not done a very good job of reaching out to uh, the population of entrepreneurs out there, um, in, in, in particular, um, uh, who is it? Mitch Kapoor, who we are co-investors with, and I told him he was my hero. He is uh, he's part of a venture call venture fund called Kapoor Capital, but he's also one of the um, founders of Lotus One Two Three, mm. which was um, similar back in the day. Yeah, similar in uh, the precursor to Microsoft Excel, and was kind of critical in my my career uh but he has a quote that says um uh genius is evenly distributed but access to capital is not and that was based on a a study by I came in one of the uh, Ivy League schools about where if you look at all the people who have been granted patents and you look at them by zip code you can't distinguish anything from California, New York, the Midwest, they all have the same kind of per capita um, um, granting capabilities. Yeah. But venture capital is not. 80% of venture capital comes in Silicon Valley, New York, and mm. Massachusetts. And so for us, smart backing means following people who we don't know doing things that we don't understand 
in very narrow geographic regions. And so for us, um, wow. it's not blanket. Um, it, it, I mean, I, so for us, it's not the name, name brands don't carry a lot of weight for us. But if it's David Gardner, who runs that, who we know, and we have an idea of what he does and what his style is and what his track record, then we put weight on it. But just because you okay. are from someone that we have heard of, that in and of itself does not give you any extra credence. And I think that opens yeah. up opportunities for us, for investors who hmm. may be overlooked by others. But boy, is that is it important to find that talented CEO and or team around that person. You know, one of my early mentors as I thought about this world was a former board member of The Motley Fool, Fred Singer, who was an investor in Yahoo and has done lots of great work. And he used to say, there are no perfect people, only perfect teams. And so it is it's got to be a high and I'm glad you said it was high for the for the for the management part of it but it's not necessarily about one star Elon Musk person a lot of times it might be about more of a synergist to to rock a term from Les McEwen previous author previously interviewed on this podcast where you're looking for somebody who's kind of egoless but is great at building a team and making sure it could be we're not perfect people, but it could be a perfect team. Yes. And then we, I, I remember, recently, I can't remember his name, said to me, he will not invest in companies with a single founder because he wants to uh, he wants to verify that you can convince one other person besides him <laughs> to invest <laughs> in the company. And so go convince someone else to quit what they're doing and work for you. Mm. And then I will talk to you about investing because mm. you're right, that leadership quality. And we and that's one of the reasons why we are at the level we are, because we want evidence that they can attract quality people. Yep. So important. All right. Number five, trait number five of the rule breaker stock is a strong consumer brand. How does that grade out for you? I think it based on I would say hi, David, and it does it does uh, require us going into the details of what you say about the consumer brand because there are companies that are not consumer faking facing, but we want companies that have strong reputations inside the areas that they're doing. Um, and so you look at that yeah. largely from the customers that they attract. When you're That's a startup, it. having a company um, um, work with you as a business. Is something that we really look at. And one of our favorite criteria, David, is having a company that is a customer of the Motley Fool. That mm. is a strong, strong um, uh, endorsement for us that there's a great business. How about naming a name or two here? Not necessarily specifically a, a Fool customer, but I hear you. Like If we're buying from them, that probably says a lot about our esteem of whatever their technology, product, or service is but Olin, what are a couple examples in your mind of companies that you're right? Not everything's a consumer brand, but every product or service does have a buyer. They might be a B two B business to business buyer. What are a couple early stage within the Motley Fool Ventures Fund companies that you think are doing a good job with brand? Uh, there's and uh, there's several of them. There's a company. Um, let me think. Of, I'm thinking of several. There's a company called Hungry Marketplace. Uh, I think has a great brand that is out there. They they deliver prepared um, uh, prepared meals usually to office locations or other locations, and obviously affected by the pandemic, but but did a great job pivoting of pivoting around that, and they're doing well. Um, there's a company, Urban Stems which delivers flowers. That you we, bet. That we, I love Urban Stems. I think we have a great brand. And um, 
Uh, there's a company, uh, Moto Refi, which is helping people to refinance their auto loans, um, which we think has a, a great brand. Those are all great examples. So none of those is a universally known brand at this point, but we're talking about Series A investments we've made in mm -hmm. these companies, right. sometimes follow on as they scale, and they have that potential to... They, they probably have somebody who really understands how to build a brand, which is certainly a good trick if you can pull it. Have in sure. your bag of tricks as a business person, a real yeah. understanding of how to build brand. And we have, a, I think, the best known companies in our portfolio. We're investing in a company called Madison Reed. And so if you are someone that uh, uh, is familiar with hair color, you may know the Madison Reed brand. We're investors in a company called Carta, uh, which if you're, is helps companies manage their, you know, their stock options in um capitalization tables, we call them. I think those are two that are fairly well known. Uh, there's a company called Republic. And I think this is an, and Republic is an interesting one in that for people who are interested in experimenting with investing in private companies, Republic is a crowdfunding platform that the Motley Pool is invested in. Uh, we're very excited about hmm. what they're doing. Um, and there's a place you can go uh, to maybe experiment with uh, investing in private companies. That's great. All right. Well, the final trait is, and this will be funny to hear you speak about, uh, is my special sauce trait for rule breaker investing. And that is that we want people to call the stock we're looking at overvalued. We want there to be a general perception that people would never actually buy or invest in that one because it's so overvalued. How does that grade out? Oh, that's <laughs> that's pretty common. <laughs> and it's almost unintentional when you have a, a an inefficient kind of marketplace and lots of people are looking for the companies that are going to outperform. As it turns out, as a Series A investor, it was literally impossible to overpay for Zoom. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, wasn't uh, it? Exactly. And, and, and so we are looking for those companies and the valuations, you often hear them in private companies. People don't understand why people are paying so much, but it's hard to fathom what it means to be growing 100% a year and what that means for $10 million of revenue at 100% a year for five years. Um, what's that, 20, 20, 40, 80, 160, 320? So that's, mm. you know, 10 million to 320 in five years. I mean, that's mm. just, <laughs> that's just yeah. incredible growth. You know, a big question, I think, on a lot of my listeners' minds at this stage, and you just mentioned Republic, Olin, so it feels relevant, is can I participate? Now, one of the things I love that you did for Motley Fool Ventures for our first fund, most venture capital funds, I learned this from you, Olin, most venture capital funds want to work with as few limited partners as possible who write as big a check as possible. So a lot of venture capital funds are just five different VC firms all writing a big check to another one, and they've got a fund now. And they just have a few people to deal with and check and give them the financials and check in with them on the phone. And that's kind of how the industry is. You want to minimize the number of investors that you have and get as much money from each one as you can. And as you started Motley Fool Ventures, you did the exact opposite. Could you explain that in a minute or less? Uh, yes. And, uh, and it really, the, the investors in most VC funds, they're, they're family offices, they're institutions, they're, they're corporations, they're, they're big entities. Mm. We decided that we wanted to, as you said, David, flip that upside down, um, bring in as many people as we could with relatively small checks. They still had to have 
uh, accreditation requirements, which we can talk about. Mm-hmm. But we ended up with 800 limited partners in our fund, wow. which is, I don't know, 20, 40 times more than your typical fund and, and multiples more than anyone who has ever told us that they've seen. So it's it's been exciting. It's an amazing story. It is a total rule-breakery approach to venture capital. I love that you had that idea and acted on it. Well, and it's meant that we have a lot more fun at our meetings than others do at theirs because theirs are just perfunctory, governance-based, open and shut. And there's probably, once we get back to meeting face-to-face again, we have hundreds and hundreds of people who are invested with us. But that leads me to this question, Olin. What about the rest of us? You just mentioned that people, I think the minimum check we can accept is $100,000. Well, I'm sure there's somebody who's listened all the way through this week's podcast who thinks this is exciting, but they don't have $100,000. They might have $5,000 or $15,000. So could you speak briefly to how the venture capital world is set up to include everyone or not? Well, yeah, the venture capital world really is not, but there are a few things. And as you mentioned earlier, David, uh, there is um, uh, the company Republic that we invested in, and they are democratizing private company investing. They have uh, crowdfunding opportunities, which doesn't have, which does not have a a, a significant minimum uh, requirement for participating in crowdfunding. Hmm. Um, they do have. Opportunities for accredited investors, which means you need to have, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars in income or some other ones, but they do a vetting process to uh, make sure that the companies on their platform are of a certain quality and, and standard. And I would say, David, very much like public company investing, very often the best thing that you can do to be successful is to just get started. You know, when we all look back at our mm-hmm. first stock in, in retrospect, we realize that um, getting in the game and beginning to learn is really the way to get um, to really to get started. Um, the education from your first investment will almost invariably outstrip the financial returns from it. Uh, so and to the extent of those people who have been thinking about crowdfunding, um, they may not think that it's uh, safe, I think, from a safety standpoint, we certainly can say that uh, Republic is a reputable platform. It's not to say that investing through the Republic platform is a great way to make money and that we're not guaranteeing that you won't lose money. In fact, you probably will because that's the nature of private company investing, (laughs) but you will learn so much so that when you get to the point where you can allocate more significant amounts of money, you're prepared, you're ready Um, and you can make better decisions. I'm glad you said that, Olin, because here at the conclusion, there are so many people fascinated by cryptocurrencies and various exchanges within that. And we're certainly not here to gainsay that. We find some interest there too. And I think most of us will be best served if you're going to spend time with that kind of scrutiny on a platform crowdfunding. I think looking at actual companies and ideas, products and services, as opposed to somebody's next idea for how to use the blockchain which is itself a really cool technology worth paying attention to. But I think a lot of us shifting our focus toward these kinds of early stage companies, I'm much more in touch with how to do that and do well at that than I would be guessing somebody else's crypto these days. So a little bit of editorializing there from me. Well, Olin, this was so much fun. You were so generous with your time. You talked us through a lot of the world. I feel like 
We only got started. In fact, one of my favorite lines, the greater the island of knowledge, the longer the coastline of mystery. So you've helped build up our knowledge a little bit, but I I find myself left with probably even more questions and the knowledge we can never speak to it all in one podcast. But I do want to thank you, Olin, because I think we're going to get some good mailbag questions this week. Again, our email, rbi at fool.com. Tweet us at rbi podcast. And Olin, if I can drag you back, I might have you in a little bit next week to speak to some of the questions we inevitably occasioned with this week's podcast. But before I let you go, one thing we used to do back in the day, as you know from our radio show, because you were listening to it back in the day, (laughs) is we would ask people buy, sell, or hold, but we wouldn't ask them about stocks. We'd ask them about something happening in the world, a product or service, a, a, a fad, a trend. And we'd say, if it were a stock, would you be buying, selling, or holding? Got it. I remember that game. I remember it well, and I enjoyed it, David. So I know you're going to play the game with me, Olin. I got three for you here. The first one, well, we just talked about it, cryptocurrencies. Buy, sell, or hold, capital C, cryptocurrency. (laughs) David, uh, I'm going to go with a buy there. It was interesting. I actually own Bitcoin because I opened up a crypto account just as an experiment and like a toaster they gave me five dollars worth of bitcoin <laughs> wow when was this this was uh well unfortunately this was when it was like at forty thousand. <laughs> oh, i see I, I was hoping it was about eight years ago no oh, it was well like eight weeks ago <laughs> <laughs> so uh, i am a i am a holder of, of crypto because i opened up an account yeah, but that says something on its own, though. You have interest, and we love, we always want you to be exploring new realms, so that's awesome. Olin, buy, sell, or hold HelloFresh. So HelloFresh is one of those meal delivery services, and I'm just thinking about it because people in my household love this thing. I'm curious whether you use HelloFresh or not. I don't even know. Are they public or not? Blue Apron didn't seem to do so well as a public company. Buy, sell, or hold specifically HelloFresh. I am a sell on HelloFresh, David, because we have a company in our portfolio called Territory Foods, which I believe is a competitor. And so I hate HelloFresh. (laughs) (laughs) HelloFresh, by the way, is German. It is publicly traded. It is the meal kit company. They've made huge inroads here in the US, but it's a German company. All right. Last one for you. I'm a homer, Dave. (laughs) (laughs) I hear you. Last one for you, Olin. Working from home. The sustainability, buy, sell, or hold? I'm a buy on that, David. <laughs> I think that um, you know flexibility is going to be paramount and working from home is going to be uh, a part of what we do, how we look at business forever. Mm. We're not and going I'm sure back. that's already part of our Motley Fool Ventures portfolio. Well, we ran it a little bit long because I just think it's such a fascinating topic. And as I said to Olin, Olin, we shouldn't have waited till year seven to have this conversation. So I have a feeling we'll be hearing from you again uh, here in 2021. Such an interesting topic. I know for many fools and prospective fools, they are interested in this. And I'm delighted to know it's getting a little bit more democratized every day. Olin, keep up the great work. Thank you very much, David. If I can ask you one quick question, buy, sell, or hold, will it be seven years before I'm back again? (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to sell that. It is not going to be seven more years before you return to this podcast. So thank you so much for your contributions. And I hope everybody has a foolish week. Next week is, of course, our mailbag, rbi at fool.com, as I've mentioned a few times. Looking forward to seeing your questions, comments, stories, poems, whatever else you have for us here at the end of July. In the meantime, fool on. 
As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rulebreaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.